ITE Soccer Women's World Cup podcast, sponsored by Cadbury. From grassroots to national level, a supporter and a half of women's football in Ireland. Ireland will exit the World Cup, uh, unfortunately, after the Nigeria game on Monday. Monday. So we do get thinking about the legacy and what this tournament is, is going to mean. So um, I've gathered here the principal chronicler of Ireland's finest football moments thus far, and Samantha Lerary, who has uh, been with the Irish fans in Oz. In Oz. So Samantha and George Hamilton, you're very welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks, um, George, it's... Uh, it's it's unfortunate that it ended at the earliest possible moment, I feel, because I think that first half particular, the, the second half against Australia and the first half against Canada probably gave a lot of people a glimpse at what this team are capable of and probably made a lot of people just remember the visceral uh, joy and terror that it is to follow an Irish team in a major competition where, you know, everything is on a knife edge. And for a while, it seemed we were on the right end of the knife edge there. And it was, you know, it's been a while, 2016, since we since we had that feeling. So it really is a gut punch when you land on the other end of the knife. <laughs> uh, you put it very well, actually, because uh, it's always been like this following an Irish team. You never know precisely how far they're going to go, uh, how thrilled you're going to be by them. Or how much they might frustrate you. I, I think that the thing that uh, must not be overlooked about this particular Irish team is that they got this far uh, through what Vera Powell worked out for them. And she took that into the finals, tried to apply that in the finals. And it's all very well with hindsight saying, oh, we should have done this and we could have done that. Because this is the first time for everybody involved. And she was trying to guide the team into a place where they had a good chance of qualifying. And if you consider what happened, Australia... They only won by a penalty, and a very unfortunate penalty it was to be given away by a relatively inexperienced player. And then there was the Canada unfortunate on goal, uh, which came about through a, a defensive lapse. These mistakes that talks about that you cannot eradicate because there are always mistakes in the game. So I don't think we can be too harsh. If it had been 5-0 against Canada, the Olympic champions, and 2-0 against Australia, and we're looking at an awful goal difference and two heavy defeats, then I think we can say, yeah, uh, something wasn't right here. But the, the knife edge about which you spoke, I mean, we could so easily have come down the other side with two draws, like Italian 90, 1-1 and 0-0. And we're looking into the third game with a real chance of moving further. And let us not forget, you know, there was a toss of the coin that put us in against Romania and not West Germany in the round of 16 after uh, the opening group in Italia 90. So you, the swings and roundabouts, ball bounces, look at the draw. It's it, it. I think they've in the circumstances they have done really, really well. And we shouldn't be too harsh in criticising the fact that they only played two halves as opposed to four halves. Yeah, absolutely. And, and Samantha, that's a good point George makes about kind of you know, just the narrow nature of the defeat and which leaves questions and like regrets and probably frustrations. Is is that noticeable among the fans in Australia? Well, I think come out here, you know, and when we previewed these games for the months that we did ahead, you might have taken those results on paper because we always knew that the Australia game was going to be tough because it was opening against the hosts and Canada, the Olympic champions, that was always billed as the most difficult. So, and I think it's a bit of a shame because, you know, it'll go down on paper as two defeats. But we, anyone who watched it knows that 
there's so much more to be taken from it and so much hope and so much expectation from that. So, yeah, I mean, I think everybody I met after the game the other night, you know, they were they were proud and they were excited and they were kind of looking towards the future and they weren't, you know, nobody felt that they'd been hard done by. Um, and I think obviously Katie McCabe's goal made that very special and a bit like, you know, being a Rovers fan over the years, you know, you 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 can become very unrealistic watching these things. And, uh, you know, you, when you go ahead or you pull ahead, you might think this is it and we could win it. Um, but that was certainly the potential and the promise that that you had in that game and also against Australia in those last um, couple of minutes, anyone thought a goal was possible. So, you know, you'd hope that in the future, most people will remember the performance as opposed to look at just the results on paper and, and hopefully the team will build from that as well. Yeah, the the Canada match, 550,000 viewers on television and 235,000 streams on, on the player. Um, George, I think that makes it the most watched uh, live international soccer match since the Portugal uh, qualifier back in November 2021. Yeah. Um, you know, they're very good numbers and you have to consider people are in more, it's, you know, it's office hours. It might be holiday time. There's plenty of people working. And also the, the sheer number of watch parties probably adds an awful lot to that number. This was a major television event, you know, you know, up there with kind of previous tournaments that you've commentated on, which seems to me like a huge leap for women's soccer, which we shouldn't, we shouldn't uh, kind of uh, just dismiss as, you know, it should all be equality and, you know, that's how it should be. It might be how it should be, but it wasn't how it was. So to see those numbers for a women's soccer match, even if it is a World Cup finals, it's great, isn't it? I would agree with you entirely. And you make the point very well, which reminds me of Desmond Lynham of County Clare on BBC in 1998 when England had a match at lunchtime. And he began his television introduction by saying, shouldn't you be at work? <laughs> I think there might have been a lot of people in that kind of position saying, I'm going to take a few hours off just to, or I might work from home today just to see it. I, I agree with you entirely. I would never have predicted that the numbers would have been like that. And it, and it thrills me that they were, because in 2019, I was at my first Women's World Cup and that was in France. And I was absolutely blown away by the support that in particular uh, the United States had, the people who crossed the Atlantic to see this uh, United States team defend its World Cup title and ultimately to win the World Cup again uh, by beating the Netherlands. And that occasion in the Lyon, the stadium, the uh, Lyon uh, Football Club Stadium, uh, brand new for the 26 Euros. And here was the Women's World Cup final three years later, uh, delivering a, an audience. It packed the place out with almost 60,000. And the atmosphere was as, as good as any football match that you'd ever be at. And the quality was right up there too, because the United States are the best in the world. So I, I'm not surprised, uh, but I am in another way, slightly overwhelmed by how, how many actually took it on board. And I think it is a giant leap for the women's game because it's brought what, what I experienced in France in 2019 right into Irish homes and right into Irish playgrounds and into Irish football clubs. And this is now something that has, has put down its roots. Women's football is big in Ireland now, thanks to this team, thanks to the manager who's taken the team to the World Cup. And those numbers prove it. Hmm. George, I would be interested just in the kind of, how the event is organized you know how your your peers in the media kind of approach it is is it the same now as an as a men's world cup is it dealt with as seriously do you see the same level of organization is it the same kind of headline commentators from the big tv markets who are doing it, it how does it compare say to you know your last men's world cup and and, and those in the past 
Uh, it's not up there yet as a tournament. I think we have to be honest and say that because it's it's been around a matter of a couple of decades. It's, it doesn't have it doesn't go back into the 1930s with that great history that the men's game have has. It's a there are some who are the main headline commentators, and there are others who aren't who specialize in women's football, and and that's just the way it is. And there are reporters here who wouldn't be the the frontline uh, Fleet Street scribes who who follow Manchester United or Liverpool and the the England national team. It, it, that's not how it works. That's I think is understandable because you said in, in some of your previous remarks, it's not supposed to be the same as the men's World Cup. It's the women's World Cup. And it's a different it's a different construct. It, it is organized in exactly the same way. The facilities are exactly the same for us when we go to broadcast. The difference I is that there isn't as much of a, a traveling support for the non hosts as there would be at a men's World Cup because the game, the women's game doesn't yet have that kind of. And that is understandable. I think we are in the fortunate position of having so many expats living in this country that those who actually dug deep into their wallets and paid their way to get here have been joined by people who live here, which has given the Irish a support base at this competition that is much greater than most of the others, uh, notwithstanding the fact that uh, there are some very big uh, footballing nations, women's footballing nations here. So it's, it's, a, it's, it's not quite the same, but yet it is the same. The post posters are the banners are up, and when I returned to Brisbane from our sad night in Perth, the streets were thronged with green and gold. They were all going to see Australia playing Nigeria. It was as big as big as anything. And the chief executive officer of Football Australia said that the the Matildas are one of the most beloved of all uh, Australia's sporting teams. And for that to be the case in a country that is completely dominated by Aussie rules football, with rugby league a close second, and rugby union and cricket battling for third place, that says something. Uh, and, I, and I saw it with my own eyes as they all streamed past our hotel on the way to Lang Park to see what, for them, was a very dis disappointing outcome last night. Yeah. Uh, Samantha, the... Kind of Italian ideas, kind of it's always referred to almost as you know the, the credit union World Cup. Everybody like took it, like decided to kind of finally go and get themselves into debt. This was something worth getting into debt for. The 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 fans in Australia are different. They've made huge life choices, but they made them before the World Cup. It's like you know, kind of the team came out to the fans in this instance, and these people have made life chasing changing decisions. Probably a lot of them involving credit union loans as well. What kind of impact do you think the tournament and the Irish team have had on the expat community? Because as huge as it is in Perth and well described by you as a, a city of um, of guards and nurses, like a giant coppers or something. But uh, yeah, <laughs> doctors, you know, they're still so far removed from home and you might have your companions there. But this must have felt like, you know, a slice of Ireland was being transported out like a giant living care box or something. It did. And it felt more like that in Perth, actually, than, you know, there was a lot of build up to the game in Sydney saying, you know, half of that stadium could be Irish and it didn't materialise that way in the end. But it was interesting, the different groups in different places. So in Sydney, um, I felt like most of the fans that were there, the local Irish fans were the backpackers. They all live in a beach called, I'm going to pronounce this wrong, Coogee. Coogee Beach. Um, when I was in Australia in 2016, backpacking around Bondi was the place to live. But 16 years has passed since then and it's um or sorry it was 2007 I was here but um 16 years later Coogee is where they all live and it's that younger crowd those people who've left Ireland recently in Perth there was a lot more of the professionals the people who've come out to work as junior doctors and um you know then there's people who are working in mining and construction and people who've built their lives here and I've just arrived in Brisbane but I've been told um by talking to the community here that it's a lot more of a settled community 
apparently accidentally end up in Brisbane. So it'll be interesting to see the support that that's here as well. But actually, they have a, an event organised here on Sunday, um, which is the community coming together to wear their green. So I think I was speaking to one guy in Perth. Um, his name was Stephen Dawson, and he's actually a government minister in the Western Australian government. And uh, he's the only Irish born. He's from Blanchardstown originally. And he was saying it's just so important for the Irish community here to have something because usually they just have St. Patrick's Day. That's the only reason they ever get together. Um, but they have... Um, you know, this this has brought them together in a different way. But the other thing that's really struck me, Mikey, here is um before we came out here, you know, we were told that there was about 4,000 fans travelling and it took a while to get a figure on it. That's based on the number of visas that are, you know, the temporary visas mm. that are issued. And and I didn't believe it. I was thinking there must be, you know, 4,000. It's too, if you think there were 7,000 people for the send-off game in Tala, then the 4,000 didn't make sense to me. Now, I haven't met 4,000, but I've met, countless amounts of people who are here and there's everything from a gang of women who rented a camper van to go up the coast who are celebrating their 40th birthdays um dads and daughters um people who were involved in football families you know it's really extraordinary because it, you know it's a far place to come and it's um an expensive place to come and even making that journey across australia to perth it's it's you know it's huge so the fact that so many people have traveled has really struck me as you know for a team that and we were talking about numbers earlier i was at the the training session they had in ucd a couple of weeks before the the team was selected and diane caldwell was saying it was a friday morning um at around 10 o'clock and it was a school time and there was 1200 people there mostly young girls who were all skipping school actually you know, <laughs> to be there and with their parents consent and um she was saying you know we would have struggled to have these numbers in Tala a couple of years ago and here we are training you know before the world cup and then you know for that um send-off game against France there were 7,600 fans and then you leap to Sydney and you've got 75,000 now you know, we we thought there'd be a lot more there in terms of Irish, but, you know, there were still thousands of Irish there. But in Perth, there was 17,000 people in that stadium and the majority of them were Irish. So, you know, that if you just think of that in simple numbers of, of, of the number of eyeballs before you add in the RT player and the RT coverage, it's just extraordinary. Yeah, it really is. Uh, you caught up with one fan, um, Hannah Cadigan from Ackle, who travelled over all the way over from Mayo with her father Raymond. I really hope they understand how much they mean to us by being here at this tournament and I really hope they know how proud we are of them for playing in this tournament and making it as far as they did and you know I think they can sense that the amount of people that have came up and supported them and even came out from Ireland that supported them and even here it they mean so much to everyone and even those at home you have young girls aspiring to be them and then you have you know previous generations who paved the pathway to be here and there's so many people that put in a lot of hard work to get the girls to where they are today and I think they really need to understand how proud we are of them. How old are you? I'm 17. <laughs> so there'll be a few more World Cups do you think that you'll see in your time? Oh 100% this team is going so far like there's so much yet to come from this team that we haven't seen and this is the most excited I've ever been for this squad and there's so much yet to come. And um, will your dad be bringing you to those? I know you, you had to convince him to bring you to this World Cup. Will, he, will you be working on him for the next ones to come and the other tournaments that lie ahead? Oh, 100%. College might be out of the question now at this stage. <laughs> That's wonderful to hear, George, isn't it? That, you know, there is this, like there is a committed fan base there. And again, as you say, it's not the Men's World Cup, it's the Women's World Cup. This is a very different fan base. The one at home 
watching at the watch parties and the one the ones i've traveled out are what won't say predominantly women and predominantly younger certainly the watch parties in ireland you know we're not talking about the submarine bar in 1990 here these are you know alcohol free events in 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 <laughs> ga clubs and soccer clubs and um mm. this is this is a an entirely different generation being inspired and one would think the ramifications um of this world cup mightn't really be felt properly for quite a few years given the age of the people most affected by it yeah i, I would i would underscore that entirely because as you spoke i was thinking of dads that i've met with their daughters at matches in tala where we sit to do the commentary it's actually in the crowd and they'll come and they'll say hello and they want selfies and all the rest that's fine but they're they're there with their dads and their dads are are lapping this up because it's an experience that they haven't had but because they happen to have daughters who are taken on this wonderful journey with the football team they're there too and want to be a part of it so i think the constituency is rather different yes the dads would be football fans but maybe not quite the the ones who would have gone to the submarine bar but they are the ones who will go to the the parties and take the girls to the matches and be very very much a part of it the experience and i've met them here as well that it's it's just i think as we're putting it is it is a different constituency uh, and it, it is it is women's football it's not men's football and it doesn't have to be all the same people following it because it has an audience of its own. And I, I think it's absolutely terrific. And I, to my mind, it'll grow and grow after this, notwithstanding the, the results. It's, the fact that, that people have seen a, a, an Irish team at, at a major event like this and have seen a player like Katie McCabe who can become the, a star uh, in their eye and somebody to look up to. You know, role models, football role model, a societal role model. It's, it's all just uh, lifted it so much. Uh, out, of, out of where it was and to think that you know all this has happened in what six odd years since they threatened the strike and here they are at the world cup it's it's a different world mm. there's there's always room for growth though samantha and um and i don't mean in terms of crowds visiting games i mean there's there's a there, there there's a group out there unfortunately as the online sports editor for rte i am um, i spend a lot of my time on social media which is not good for anybody really um so i i'm very aware of the very vocal constituency out there who say things like this world cup speed rammed down my throat why are we wasting license fee money on this i watch it it's the standard of under 15 boys yaddy you, you like you, you know what i'm talking about because you've read it you can't have not read it you probably get some of it in your own mentions i wonder yeah. How much would success, like a really like making the last sixteen, like a a huge landmark win against one of the, like Australia or Canada, would it have provoked something like a walk and sound roundabout moment, and like we could have won over some of these people who seem to be vehemently opposed to the concept of women's football, never mind having to watch it themselves. But do we need to win them over? I, that's what I wonder because <laughs> I think instead what this has done is it's created. A platform for young girls and and not just young girls boys everybody to be able to support this team and you know as somebody who started going to league of ireland football games in the 1990s i was 11 years old when my dad brought me to my first shamrock rovers game in dailyman park and um as an aside i had to i saw them win the league that year and had to wait 17 years to see them do it again um but at, back at that time and i would have spent a lot of my time in talca park um when rovers played there I was genuinely one of the only girls in the crowd. You know, there was a handful sometimes of us. And for a long time, and it hasn't been since Shamrock Rovers moved to Tala in 2009, that I've seen, a, you know, a critical mass of young girls going to football games. So I find this very extraordinary to watch. And, and that's why Hannah there stood out to me so much because she reminded me so much of me off with my dad. And I never managed to convince him to bring me to a World Cup. But, 
you know it's <laughs> just given uh, you know it's given them role models and Katie McCabe said before this tournament you know if we achieve nothing else that you know we have set a legacy in place and you know she was saying her favorite player growing up was Damien Duff that she didn't have a female role model but now this generation do and you think this current squad you know all of them their story begins playing football with boys that there's no infrastructure there for them you know they they've come through a male system to break into and, and and go to a women's world cup so you have to think that down the line that the the, the likes of hannah there and her generation they can play in clubs they can you know they have access and this only makes it more accessible and the fai were telling us before we came out here that um you know that the growth in the game has already been seen you know since the rise of this team um at grassroots level so like the only way is up and i wouldn't be so concerned about you know people who you know are set against women's football you know it, it doesn't matter that they're not they can continue to enjoy what they enjoyed before in the same way that there's people who like rugby who don't like football there's people who like ah who don't like football um but what you, you've done is you've opened this game to a whole audience who maybe didn't feel included in it before yeah can, we, can we just remind those those folk perhaps that uh it was uh, an irish woman stephanie roach who was in among the uh the top three goals not that long ago in europe uh, courtesy of UEFA and uh, there aren't too many who would do what Katie McCabe did when she scored the first goal for Ireland in the World Cup and yeah. Olympico straight from the corner that is a skill uh, and there are not too many there are not too many male footballers who have it never mind females and think how excited they got they made a film about Bendit with Beckham can we expect something on the silver screen about Katie why not why not Girl with Katie <laughs> very good <laughs> yeah. that's it She's well. She's a compelling character on and off the pitch. So yeah, she's 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 ripe for a biopic. Um, what what next, then, George? Obviously, we've got you know the Nations League has been uh, started up. So we're going to have a Women's Nations League, and the FAI are kind of trying to take a you know make make the most of the World Cup bounce, and they're hosting their first match in in the Aviva Stadium, which they've been very reluctant to do. They've kind of been you know the the is their home. It's the right size for the crowds they draw. So now they're they're welcoming you know the, uh, Northern Ireland to the Aviva, which is it's a big step. It's a little bit of a gamble. You know, you, you'd wonder how many will have to turn up for it to be considered a success. Um, you would hope to think that, yeah, as we've been discussing all these converted fans, but you know, it's a growth period for women's soccer, I suppose. So, so the trajectory, the trajectory everyone is expecting is one that continues upwards in terms of participation at grassroots level to success for the international team and for the domestic league. I think, I think that's right. And they got to make this leap into the Aviva, into the unknown, to see how it'll work out. And I think uh, this is the time to do it. Um, you think of what happened with that first Lansdowne Road FAI Cup final, Bray Wanderers and St. Francis, non-league St. Francis, first division, Bray Wanderers, two, no team from the Premier League division in it. And that drew 30,000 people to Lansdowne Road that day because it was unique. And these these women are unique in, in footballing terms. And this would be the first opportunity for the home crowd to show them they appreciate what they've, what they've done in Australia at this World Cup. And I think the trajectory is undoubtedly up. And I think that uh, there'll be no going back. Um, and this, this is Ireland now part of the, the women's international footballing family. And they made, they've made a real impact here, despite the fact that they've lost both their games because they were close. And they played very well in patches in those games. And it's, it's the first time, you know, uh, the men's team's first big tournament was Euro 88. And they came home after three games to a welcome that Jack Charlton couldn't believe. So 
you know, it's it doesn't have to be success for Irish sports fans to acknowledge that this this has been something something special. And you know, it, it, the the men's team did put put the country on the map in a sense, in a, a societal sense. And I think the Manon Aaron here have done the same thing in a different kind of way. Yeah, and we 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 certainly hope that follows through into the years to come. Uh, obviously, they're not finished. They have Nigeria on Monday in Brisbane, which. Thankfully, now there's something riding on that for for Nigeria. So it, you know, it would be it would be a shame if we had two eliminated teams playing each other. That would have been really taking the air out of the balloon. But at least Ireland will have a motivated competitor. You can hear George commenting on that on RTE two and the RTE player, and Samantha will be across RTE radio and news uh, output. And you can follow the match on two FM, listen live, or via the live blog on the RTE website and the RTE news app. And as just a reminder again, all the matches are live either on the RT player or RTE2. So thank you to George and thank you to Samantha for joining us from Brisbane. And we'll be back again tomorrow. Good luck. Supporter and a half likes, shares, comments, and tweets. Cadbury sponsors RTE Soccer Women's World Cup podcast.